Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Welcome back to week three of our mental health book club on Prince Harry's memoir, Spare. Uh, Today, we're going to be going over section two of the book, chapter 59, to the end of section two, and then we get into section three through chapter 29. So we kind of covered the end of his time in the military, and then part three uh, starts to talk about the relationship with Meghan Markle. So uh, per usual, let's hop in with what were some of y'all's first impression. I think for me, and I don't want to get too far ahead, it was just really interesting how head over heels he was about Megan from the very beginning. Like you've seen all these other relationships that you've had kind of fall apart because of the paparazzi. And then this one, you were just like, you didn't care what you had to do to be able to talk to or you were going to find a way. I thought it was interesting. He started to get into going to therapy and talking about um, how that was and that he kind of formally got diagnosed with PTSD um, or kind of like one physician mentioned it one time or something. It's kind of what he said offhandedly, but I'm sure as we get into it more, he maybe will open up a little bit on on how that all went down. I'll piggyback off of what Ashley and Nita said. I, you know, I've seen the documentaries. I've kind of followed them. I didn't, I wasn't that interested at the time of like the Royal Wedding, but reading about their story, like in this book, now the second time through, but also having seen the documentaries and stuff, it's just like so sweet that I got a couple of cavities, you know, that sort of like really sappy love story. But it's it's happiness at a point in this story that's been so heavy and layered with trauma. So it's he's been through some shit. But also the therapy where we're hearing about diagnoses, he's talking more about his anxiety and he's coming to awareness about the the triggers to PTSD and stuff like that. You already know I've got these like mental health sections highlighted. I've got commentary on how Willie and his father uh, responded to said mental health uh, condition. So we will get to it. But to jump in, I thought it was interesting at the beginning of this section where he's talking about, you know, so he's kind of uh, coming out of the military. He he witnesses, um, I think it was some sort of like military wounded warrior type of Olympics in the United States as he's touring. And he gets the idea to do something in, I believe it was called like the International Warrior Games, and he kind of pitches this idea. Um, So I kind of want to share a little bit about that, uh, because it gets into the dynamic of kind of that royal kind of politics, but also the air and spare situation going on. So quote, thrilled. I reached out to Willie, expecting him to be thrilled as well. He was sorely irritated. He wished I'd run all this by him first. My assumption, I said, was that other people had done so. He complained that I'd be using up all the funds in the Royal Foundation. That's absurd, I sputtered. I was told only half a million pound grant would be needed to get the games going, a fraction of the Foundation's money. Besides, it was coming from the Endeavor Fund, an arm of the Foundation I'd created specifically for veterans' recovery. The rest would come from donors and sponsors. What was going on here? I wondered. Then I realized, my God, sibling rivalry. I put a hand over my eyes. 
had we not got past this yet, the whole air versus spare thing, wasn't it a bit late in the day for that entire childhood dynamic? But even if it wasn't, even if Willie insisted on being competitive, on turning our brotherhood into some kind of private Olympiad, hadn't he built up an insurmountable lead? He was married with a baby on the way while I was eating takeaway alone over the sink. Pa's sink. I still live with Pa. Game over, man. You win. End quote. And so for context, for those listening to this who haven't uh, read the book, truly, I believe this was when uh, William's first child was about to be born. And basically, it was almost like Prince Harry wanted to do something with the kind of the funds that were available to the royals to make a difference, because obviously, Willie wasn't going to be able to do it because he would be occupied with like, parenthood and stuff like that. And so naively harry thought oh he's going to be kind of supportive of this right and it kind of came back to the you're stealing my thunder so i would i was interested to get y'all's takes on that like sibling rivalry air and spare uh dynamic i think that whole chapter there's a lot of commentary about like oh he got married oh he's having a baby oh i'm gonna be an uncle i'm so excited and like, I hope this is going to change the dynamic. And like, I can be the fun uncle that like comes over for dinner. And he doesn't get any of that warmth, right? Like he gets n- none of that from his brother. And then like you had alluded to, he's like, oh yeah, they're going to be so busy and no one's going to have time to spend funds from the foundation and like do any good outreach. So like I'll step in and be super helpful and like do something to make us all look good. And his brother doesn't take it that way at all. It reminded me of like, classic triangulation like siblings aren't you know you're not supposed to be friends with your siblings like that's your competitor and you're not supposed to do or have an idea before them or especially if you're younger than the oldest you know um and that dynamic was kind of very much shoved down his throat so that's kind of what it read to me a little bit but i think also around that time we started seeing the insecurities that harry has about starting his own family getting married and all this stuff and it seems to be something that weighs very heavily on him and people around him are not helping even his brother is kind of like are you sure you're gonna get married don't get your hopes up which who says that to somebody to kind of add to what you just said nita once we get into kind of the relationship with megan because obviously he has other people that he's dated throughout these two sections but as they get into that relationship and it's interesting too because willie and Kate are fans of the show that Meghan Markle is in. So you'd think like, oh, they're going to be thrilled. Like, but there's, and I, I think it's covered later on in the book, like uh, kind of some of the uh, attempts that were made to kind of foster friendship between Meghan and Kate and how they kind of had some falling outs. And of course the press like painted it a certain way and all of this, but there seems to be, kind of like what I just shared, there seems to be some sort of like, don't steal my thunder. Like I'm the, the, the heir I'm getting married. I'm having a family like, yeah, sure. You can do that too, but I'm important and you're supposed to kind of stay out of the way. That's, that's the kind of vibe that I got from that. Yeah. It's almost like there's an excuse, right? It's like, Oh, you don't have a wife. So, you know, you can't really spend time with us because you need to be coupled up. And then once he has a wife, he's like, okay, I got a wife. And it's like, oh, no, you're like tangential royalty. You're not a part of like the nuclear like line of succession anymore. So we don't really need you a part of this. 
It feel it just feels like there's always a reason why he's not good enough to his brother. I thought it was really weird to that each time well, I guess I don't know how many kids William and Kate have, but I know that at least the first two, the press would like interview him and be like, Well, how do you feel? Because now you're knocked down a couple of rungs on the the docket, I guess, of becoming and Harry is like, I don't want this. Uh, I'm thrilled. I'm I'm thrilled to be an uncle. I'm happy for them that they're happy. You know, um, he's. But they almost want. They almost want to like push him into this like jealous like prince sort of narrative, and they got the wrong one because he's a lot like his mom, and he truly doesn't care about this stuff. And I love that for him. So, um, since you know this, this is interesting because almost like the very first book we did together, we're blending the context of what we've seen in the media along with what's written in the book. And I think the media element is very real. And for that, I I don't agree with everything that William has going on, but I see how some of this is created. Because one of the things that I was thinking about, and I didn't finish this whole section, but I am into it, um, was if anyone remembers... When William and Kate got it, I think it was before they were married. It was when they were on a trip together, or maybe it was on their honeymoon. It was on their honeymoon. Someone snuck into the private island. Obviously, they had a lot of security and got topless photos of Kate. Um, and the royal press went after everything. Um, and she was quite embarrassed, obviously. I mean, that's a major violation of privacy. And so as I'm reading and going through all these things, you also wonder, was there ever, was there ever a fair shot? And while our intentions are important and our action and our behavior are important, our environment is, is a major player in everything. And so when you look at how William Kate were disgraced and how they were treated, you know, I could see that image becoming increasingly important to someone. Not saying that I agree with how this has gone on, but I could see why someone might get defensive about the endowment fund. I could see how other things are going on. And so I like, you also think about the oldest, the heir growing up in that spotlight. I actually, I moved to the U.S. when I was six and I remember when Diana died. Um, And I just remember you know, like it, you have to wonder what it's like for him too. And if that dynamic could ever have worked with the rise of social media, with the rise of the web. So they're navigating things as royals, but they're also navigating things as royals with technology that's unprecedented, with media that's unprecedented. And so to me, there's just this air of sadness all around because there's always going to be a third person in that relationship. And that third person is never going to have the best interests at heart. And that will be, you know, your, your salacious press. Well, and, and Brianna, what your comment just made me think, just like the first book, right? We're dealing with kids that grew up in this media. So sister wives, great example, all of their kids, um, John and Kate plus eight, great example, all of their kids. These kids were thrust into the media when it was like newly being whatever. This is probably like media PTSD. 
on top of everything like that. I mean, I'm not going to be surprised if that comes up to be a different kind of thing. Their lives were under a microscope. But you just you have broken people leading broken people. And I I feel for the older brother in that regard. And he he has that image he has to uphold. He has to have that strength. I feel for the younger brother who he doesn't have to be the heir and just wants to be the brother. He just wants to be the uncle. But, you know, that that's never going to be a, a two person relationship. None of them will ever have a relationship with just one other person. There will always be a third party. And I think to add to that, it's almost like if you've if you've grown up with a sibling, sometimes the younger person will be treated a certain way based on, oh, well, this is how your your older sibling had it or something like that. I kind of see some of that with Harry in a sense that, okay, so uh, I wasn't familiar with the topless private island situation until you shared about it, but the way that the media went after Megan and how the legal counsel, like the people they keep on staff to like handle that sort of stuff were like, don't, don't mess with the press. Like, don't, don't sue, don't, you know, and it was almost like, well, it was explicitly said, and it was also implied that it could be worse. Uh, You know, other people have had to go through this. I mean, and then he could see also too, his mom had to go through this and different things like that. And he's sitting here like, what the fuck? Like, this is my life. Like, why are we like, he wants to and I, I just see so much of Diana in him of the, why are we subscribing to this shit? But at the same time, he's trying to, I forget the term you used last time, uh, Ashley, something, something breaker, legacy breaker, or I can't oh, remember. Cycle what, breaker. breaker. That, 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 yeah. So he's, he's the cycle breaker, but he's trying to be a cycle breaker in a very, he's playing a new game when this thing is like uh, generations in in place right and so we talked about it in previous episodes it's just going to be gaslighting like that very i believe the very first scene in the book is that whole like you know harry's trying to have this like little powwow with his dad and brother and it's like i gotta leave and they're over here like we don't know what's wrong with you we genuinely don't know what's wrong with you. And it was like ultimate gaslighting, right? He's getting that when it comes to how they're treating him in his relationships prior to Megan, but also like this relationship with Megan obviously is the one that is the the commitment that happened, right? And everything that happened to her, she's she's an American. She's like, oh no, we what is this? What is this nonsense, right? And he's also a cycle breaker. So he's trying to advocate for her and he's also trying to you know, we've talked about this before. This isn't just some like spoiled print story where it's like, oh, woe is me. Let me talk about all the bad things that have happened in my life and my castles, right? He's He is very relatable despite his immense privilege. So he's actually using his privilege and platform to try to, I, I don't think he's trying to make a change for like future royals to like have a better chance he's just trying to be a fucking human being who can like live a good quality of life and you know have people get off his back kind of thing and he's fighting with these old customs and things that are so pre-existed him everybody he knows generations and generations before and he's he's really up against this mammoth and no allies really it's it's um it's kind of coming to a head here 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you you touched on it, but his brother and his dad kind of tell him like, oh, you know, you going and, you know, putting out a statement like we've never done that. Now you're making us look bad. And it should be, oh, why didn't we think of that? Like we should have done that, too, because this is not right. Well, I want to kind of hop into the main thing that I highlighted from Section 3 so far was mainly just the, obviously, because it's a topic that's important to me, but uh, because I read, you know, the the love story and all of that, and it was sweet and everything like that. The thing that stood out most to me, because I'm also a uh, biracial person like Meghan Markle, right? And my, even my marriage dynamic and my child that I have is the exact same, like, combination of, you know, cultures, races, and things like that um, as hers. So what really jumped out to me was like the racism that she encountered early on. And despite the fact that she's not like this, like freeloader gold digger that they try to like paint her out to be, she was doing completely fine on her own out here catching flights, you know, sitting with the, you know, rich and famous at these, she just happened to be in, you know, uh, was it Wimbledon to see her friend, you know, and, uh, and, and, he he was checking for her right she didn't she wasn't trying to even have a man at that point she was just trying to you know um be single so when his world collided with hers all of the baggage came with it and obviously they had like their little bubble of like safety like in it was botswana like where how they would like kind of do you know they were able to keep their relationship kind of from the press for a while, but as soon as they found out, all hell broke loose, right? And so what really has struck me and what has gotten me interested in this was the race component. And I think the most um, disgusting, I can't remember what uh, platform put it out, but it was, I want to say they had their first child and one of the papers like published just a photograph of a monkey. I want to say I probably saw that in uh, one of the the documentaries. It's probably I think it's mentioned in the book too, but just that. And I think uh, you know I'm very uh, aware of like the the way that racism works in the United States, but uh, it seems to be on a whole nother level. I mean, they're kind of the originators of uh, you know what we got over here going on. Uh, they kind of set it all in motion, so they know some pro pro tips. Um, so just interested in y'all's thoughts on the, the race component there. And then we're going to come back and get into some of the mental health. Cause there was a lot of good, like mental health nuggets, but I wanted, since we were on that topic, I wanted to see what y'all thought of it. Funny enough, I actually wrote that, uh, about that picture, that comment. So I actually know exactly where it is. It goes and they showed the world, what kind of partners they really were talking about the media. A BBC radio presenter posted a photo on his social media, a man and a woman holding hands with the chimpanzee. The caption read, Royal Baby Leaves Hospital. Like, that bothered me so much. And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. And the fact that his dad and brother see nothing wrong with stuff like that is insane. Yeah, I think it's hard to compare and say, oh, everyone's spouse, like, gets media hate uh, when you're white. (laughs) Like, I think it's very different. Like, oh, yeah, the media, like, didn't like Kate's dress or something. But it's different when it's, like, blatant racism where they're like, oh, she's straight out of Compton. She's never even been to Compton. Like, she she didn't live anywhere near there. What did he say? Like, 45 minutes? Like, that's not where she grew up. 
She's not some like ghetto princess like that. All these comments people are making, it's like, no, she was a pretty well educated, you know, middle income family actress who like did it all right and stands on her own two feet and doesn't need him. So I don't really understand like all the comments and uh, the genealogy parts of it where they were like talking about like the blue blood and the the diluting of the blood and like expanding the flavor or something. I was like, this is disgusting. I think they called it like exotic blood or something like that, that they were talking about. To me during this time, and this is all coming out. And like, unfortunately I'm from a family that would talk like that and I would call them out and they would be like, I'm not racist. And I'm like, cool, but you are. Um, at this time, just the saying that stuff out loud, saying that like the amount of people that would like say that, like, I don't think that's the right way of using that phrasing though, but like saying that kind of just hatred and like the hate speak anyway, I have a tough time with that. Like it just, it, it doesn't feel good. Cause it's, it's violence with words. It's violence with pictures. It's, it's just violence on quite frankly, like just melanated people. Like, come on, like it's the dumbest effing thing in the entire planet. Um, but I was just so sickened during just watching her treatment. At the same time, I th- wasn't this 2016 when everybody was just letting that flag fly? I mean, it was great because then the people around you weren't quiet about it anymore and you know who to never talk to again. You know, it was, it was great for cutting people off and calling them on their crap. But like, I don't, I don't know. And like, it really, to me, it's just a disappointment that people are still treating other people like that. Like, and just, but like, why? Why is this still? I don't know. I guess to add to that too, because I'm thinking about specifically what Nita has shared about like the the two people holding hands with the the chimp, right? And so, you know, I'm mixed race. I just identify as black or mixed race. Uh and I'm married to a white person. And I think with us being a mixed race couple, like on a personal level, we're like, oh, what will our child look like? It's okay for us to be like what will our, you know, we, we decide we're only having one child, but in our dynamic, I mean, there are people with that same setup who will have say three children, one will be Brown, one will be like in the middle and one will look like completely fair skin. Like you can have a whole little rainbow within those genetics, right? It's disgusting to hear the speculation that people who are not in their bed, (laughs) the only people who should really have something to say about their reproduction, speculating on how dark the baby will be and stuff like that. It's just weird. Um, And then I guess I can reflect on it from a sense that, you know, my one child, Maya Jane, is incredibly fair-skinned, did not get a drop of melanin, you know, in the gene pool or whatever you want to call it, right? But I'm brown. And I remember when, you know, she was like all of three months when the pandemic hit. So, Uh, We were all losing our goddamn minds being stuck at home. So I had that little like uh, little thing where you strap the baby to yourself, you know, Uh, and I would go on like long walks, you know, through town and stuff like that. And people would literally be like, oh, you're babysitting. The fuck? (laughs) Why? Like, it's weird to talk to a grown adult that you don't know. And the first thing you think is because I'm brown and this child is fair skinned that it's not mine, that I'm the help. It was just weird. It was really weird. So um, 
or society as a whole doesn't it's very simple it's like oh brown man can't have a unmelanated child you know uh it would be the i guess it would be the same dynamic if like for example i am mixed so like um growing up sometimes people would be like oh that's your mother because my mother is white and they'd be like yes they're that we're all human it it, 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 there's it's it's not black or white there can be you know nuance on in between so it's just weird to me that i i guess i'm reflecting on my own experiences of course growing up mixed race but also like having a mixed race family but also obviously reflecting on the story of this mixed family um and kind of seeing their dynamic and it's all just weird to me people are weird i think the um like the word that comes to mind for me with this content in this chapter is colonization. Like we can't underscore colonization and looking at cultural dynamics of race and, and what is considered to be media fair game, not to say that is equitable or that is right, but like, wow, wow. Um, and so I don't really know that I have, you know, a novel takeaway, but just looking through this chapter and these quotes, you're like, yep, yep. I mean, it it tracks, it tracks in an unjustifiable, unfair way. But when you have, um, made that your, your MO as a nation, of course, that's going to trickle. Um, and just to piggyback off that, like col- col- colonization, authoritative parenting, oppressive treatment, dysfunctional families, it's all the same vein. And I hate saying it. I mean, it's my experience, but them white moms hit different. Them white moms have a certain level of toxicity. I am a white mom. I fight against it every day. But my white mom was not was not great. So I I. It's not an uncommon thing. I think you see the parallels in the other shows that I mentioned too with the other media. If my mom had a camera on her, like these impossible things, these gaslighting things that are on film that are still denied, it's it's impossible stories. You can't make this shit up. Sorry, John Zell, if you have to beep it, whatever. But, but that's a whole common like trope in narcissistic We have a tally going too. how many times I say fuck on this podcast. Oh, great, great. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't yet. Like, really? I, I should get a gold star. But, you know, like, that's the kind of stuff that, like, you know, like, that's, you know, we're watching dysfunctional family systems. This is a big one. It's the royal family. They're still dysfunctional. I don't know. Some of the, the stories that I'm hearing, they relate a little too close to home with, I don't know, a very similar story that I can replace the words with mom and dad or my brother or my sister or, you know, whatever. Um, then you add the media, which is a whole another level of toxicity. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a big Harry and Meghan fan and have been for a long time. I was a big Diana fan. Um, oh, I, I do want to let you guys know that my mom is very similar to Princess Diana for her. Um, and she's just been treated poorly and you know so she was very obsessed with the royal family so i kind of stayed away from it for a long time intentionally um and he really like just kind of watching him grow up and i was just like why is this boy in the news again for being 15 and being 15 
you know, being 16 and doing some 16 year old stuff, like leave that boy alone. Um, so yeah. This is really, I want to say, and it's kind of like a little personal thing. Uh, for a long time, I wanted to, to do foster parenting. But one of the things that scares me most is you get the kids that need it the most first. If I get a white kid and somebody that's clearly black, I have to worry about taking this kid's papers with me at all times because I'm going to be pulled over. I'm going to be targeted. I'm going to have people telling me, why do you have this kid? And it's going to be like that with the school board. It's going to be like that with strangers. And it's just like stressful that, you know, these kids really need somebody to love them. They need the help. But if you step up and help, you're opening yourself up to a whole nother can of worms and racism that is going to be hard to explain to kids. Our, our oldest best friend was black and like dark skinned black and from a different area of town. And just the amount of things that he had to go through day to day and like that we would get questioned like it. It's a completely different. And the thing is, it's like because I grew up the color I did. It's a different perspective and i'm so glad we talk about those kind of things now because like until 10 years ago when that started being something that at least white families started hearing about from you know like it it it, the word didn't it wasn't as loud you know and and so when that perspective i was like oh and i had a good friend that like they had a, a kid that they adopted that was darker than the rest of the kids that they had to do completely different things. And he got pulled over more and targeted more. And it was like clockwork. It was exactly 100%. And the more my world opened up, the more I talked to my friends that were darker than me and shades darker, the more it was like, yes, absolutely. Our parents sat us down and had these conversations when we were in God, kindergarten, first grade before you started school. like my parents didn't have those kind of conversations with us. It was don't play with those kids. You know, like it was a different conversation and it was not a good one. So the, the, I mean, I knew it was wrong. I watched Mr. Rogers, like he wouldn't talk like that, you know, but it's, it was just blatant in our family. And I'm so glad that so many more people are talking about it. And I, 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 the amount of education that, and the tirelessness of certain advocates that have just like nonstop got this conversation going is, is all it's awesome. But I'm, I wish the perspective change, you know, you can't get back that time. So you try to just do better with the time that you definitely. And Nita, something that you had said, like about the, the prospect of adopting and stuff. There was one instance, I don't remember specifically where, but I was taking Maya Jane, my daughter, to something medical. I don't know if it was for a checkup somewhere or something. And someone asked me, they were like, what relation are you to her? And it was just really weird to me. And I remember, um, it's almost like I come to these epiphanies during these podcasts, like conversations. It's really... Um, should probably journal about it or talk to my therapist. But there was a period of time where I'm like, what if Maya Jane, who is a toddler, is like in a store having a tantrum or something? And I'm like, kind of, you know, collecting her emotions or having to pick her up or kind of drag her. You know, you've seen it happen in stores before. And someone believes that I'm kidnapping her. Like, I've had the thought cross my mind before. And that in addition to the fact that I'm a six foot five black 
man with like dreadlocks, which is, you know, not what my little unmelanated, like curly hair, like girl looks like, you know, Uh, I just, it's weird that I have to, I, I think it's, it's a combination of things, but like, I have to think about what if someone thinks that I'm kidnapping my child and I mean, babies don't tend to have like an ID card or something like I can't think of anything that I carry with me on a daily basis that would show like this is my other than like pictures on my phone. You know, it's like it's a weird thing to be like, I have to prove that I'm this this person's parent because race is so fucked up. I just wanted to share that observation. It doesn't really give us a conclusion, but I think from the collection of like those reflections that we've had, we can kind of resonate and understand kind of some of these dynamics that Harry and Megan and obviously they've done a good job at like shielding their kids from the media for the most part uh and I know the one person who's not here this week Becky talks a lot about how she doesn't advocate for like um you know parents who do like mommy blogs and stuff like that because it is a form of exploitation and down the road you have to deal with the mental health ramifications of what information was overshared and stuff like that it's it's very interesting and then i think you know all of these like experiences that we've talked about they are so like blip tiny itsy bitsy things compared to the exposure and the number of eyes and the people who know uh these people's you know business it i can say i can't even imagine i can resonate somewhat but my little like encounters where you know, someone might feel some kind of way in a grocery store or misunderstand my role in Maya Jane's life or something like that is, you know, it's hard to really uh, put that in the perspective of what they must be dealing with because they're so famous. But yeah, any more thoughts on that before we kind of take to we shift back to kind of the mental health stuff? I mean, I think we we could go around and around on this all day long and that the world needs to change. And but I don't think it's going to until the media gets on board with the education. Honestly, um, there's a lot of story to tell and it's a hard story, but we need to accept it and move forward. And I think the Royal family could start with start owning some of their stuff and talking about their atrocities. Cause I'm sure there's plenty and it was well-documented. And we talked about it a little bit last time, like uh, Harry kind of, I read the quote about how he like talked about how a lot of the stuff is stolen, you know, from Africa and stuff. And um, in this section that we read, I know someone had, um, I think it was Ashley who like brought it up last time, but the kind of thing where, um, you know, Harry wants to do something and uh, William is like, well, Africa is my thing, you know? Uh, and I know Ashley, you had said it's, it's giving uh, colonialism. Right. Uh, and so, it's it's an interesting kind of combination of experiences and stuff like that and truly like when you have such you know there's there's privilege which you don't really control uh privilege for the most part you can acquire privilege but entitlement is optional entitlement does not always go with privilege uh but unchecked privilege turns into entitlement and i really think that again I don't know William. I don't know all of these people. However, based on this perspective, and obviously it's somewhat biased and planted from Harry's perspective, but the entitlement of being the actual heir and having, you know, uh, basically the the uh, preference in pretty much every aspect, he's a little blind to 
his role in things. And as we get further down into this, we kind of see how him and his wife and their teams, you know, kind of handled things when it came to Harry and Meghan and not really even like protecting them. And in fact, taking their protection away from them, like their literal security, like the literal thing that could prevent them from being harmed by the outside people of whom they are supplying all this information to. Truly disgusting. But anyway, let's transition back to mental health because this section that we read had quite a bit of information. And I think this was like the part where uh, Prince Harry starts unpacking his own anxiety and PTSD. And um, this brings me back to the Oprah interview a couple years ago, I think it was 2020, uh, when uh, I was, and I mentioned this in a previous episode, but when I saw Prince Harry doing EMDR in that documentary, and I'm an EMDR trained therapist, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't wait to, to I think I even did a blog post on my website. I, I actually know I did. I did like a little like Prince Harry's mental health journey. Like I did a little write up based on that alone because I was like, oh, he's doing EMDR and he's talking about his experiences and stuff. And we knew that a book was coming. So from there, I was like, oh, I can't wait to hear about his own experiences because I live with an anxiety disorder. So I have a couple snippets. I know y'all probably have some too that you're going to want to share, but um, he talks. So I mentioned before he he's talking about like the International Warrior Games he's kind of set this up, but he's also dealing with his own anxiety. So I'm going to share a snippet from uh, chapter 61. Um, He says, I expected magic. I thought this challenging, ennobling task of creating an international warrior games would propel me into the next phase of my post-war life. It didn't work out like that. Instead, day by day, I felt more sluggish, more hopeless, more lost. By late summer of 2013, I was in trouble, toggling between bouts of debilitating lethargy and terrifying panic attacks. My official life was all about being in public, standing up in front of people, giving speeches and talks, doing interviews, and now I found myself nearly incapable of fulfilling these basic functions. Hours before a speech or public appearance, I'd be soaked with sweat. Then, during the event itself, I'd be unable to think, my mind buzzing, with fear and fantasies of running away. Time and time again, I just managed to stave off the urge to flee. But I could envisage a day when I wouldn't be able to, when I'd actually sprint off stage or burst out of a room. Indeed, that day seemed to be coming fast, and I could already picture the blaring headlines, which always made the anxiety three times worse. End quote. There's a lot more examples like this, but we're talking about panic attacks. We're talking about sweating. We're talking about being in front of, uh, you know, an audience. Um, I think um, social anxiety and um, stage fright and all of these things, it really doesn't matter if you have an anxiety disorder or not. A lot of people can resonate with some of these aspects. So I'm interested what y'all think about that or some of your reflections. Again, I like the way he describes things. I think he describes things well. I think this is a really good, accurate description of PTSD. I have um, diagnosed PTSD, and um, it's not a fun thing to live with, but it is like a waxing and waning, and sometimes it is just lethargy and panic attacks and not much in between. Um, And there's a a lot of work that goes into having a life that, is manageable day to day, but also like enjoyable. So I really do like that he went in and described this and talked about it in detail. 
And again, like, like we talked about in a couple of weeks ago, if he's got some kind of neurodiversity and it goes into descriptions of things, I'm not going to be surprised. Um, like the places that he's in that kind of way. So I, I think, I think this is a really good, it, it shows off his talent too, in that kind of way. So that's fine. Steph, I'm going to give the perfect example of that uh, since you just said it, and then we're going to continue to unpack the reflection of his anxiety. So on page 225, he's talking about PTSD, right? So he said, despite all my work with wounded soldiers, all my efforts on their behalf, all my struggles to create a game that would spotlight their condition, it never dawned on me that I was a wounded soldier. And my war didn't begin in Afghanistan. It began, yeah, it began in August 1997. When I tell you I read that and I screamed, literally, I was like, God damn, he wrote that perfectly. And it was, it truly punched me in the fucking stomach. The way that he combined storytelling with his experiences and it all culminated at like that line. Uh, I don't know if they tried to line that up right with the end of the page, but the way that it was all constructed, it was a boom moment. So uh, the way that he creates scenes is pretty impressive. But y'all keep reflecting on this anxiety, PTSD, social anxiety, stage fright, because there's a lot there. Well, and like, let's put him spotlight in the social media, too. You know, like, what a way to really handle that exact... Oh, poor thing. I think, too, as somebody who also deals with, like, anxiety that I didn't know I had (laughs) until I turned 30, um, I think you, as growing up, like, you have this, like, we've talked about before, you have this hope it's going to get better, and you've got coping skills that kind of work, but not really. And I feel like at some point, and he's at that age, right, he's, like, just hitting that, like, past 30, uh, your brain kind of finishes developing, and it's like, Friends, it's not getting better. It's never going to get better. And something just like snaps. And I think that he hit that point. Specifically, I think when he started to do, you know, started to do more public speaking again after the war. And he was like, I'm broken. Um, I don't know how to fix this. And I don't know what's wrong. Um, And I, I mean, I feel that, right? Like your heart gets all racy. You're like, oh my God, my heart, something's wrong with my heart. And no, no, you're just having a panic attack. It's fine. Just breathe and it'll go away. (laughs) Um, But when you don't know and you have no mental health literacy on what's happening, it doesn't start to click until you're in therapy. And you're like, oh, none of that was normal. Like I've had this the whole time, but I've been really good at tricking myself into pushing it over here. And you mentioned the mental health literacy out of anybody in the freaking world we talked about privilege this man has access to the means he could have a whole team of therapists surrounding him every second of the day it would be nothing it would be pennies in a bucket right but we talked about the the institutions the don't embarrass us don't show weakness the 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 toxic masculinity the don't It's weird because it's like, don't talk about our business, kind of like we hear in some other types of families. But this is, don't talk about our business unless it's for our gain, right? And so, you know, when he finally does get to treatment, it's almost like, it's like, why there's the scene and I'll share it uh, at some point, but the therapist had her mouth like wide open, like, 
And there are sometimes like as a therapist too, someone will be in their first session and they're talking to me and they're just like, I'm the first therapist that they've ever talked to. And, and I'm just like, so what do you, you know, I read their paperwork in advance because who wants their first appointment to be talking about paperwork? I'm like, so what do you want to talk about today? And then they say things and I'm, you know, I'm keep it pretty genuine. I'm like, goddamn, please write a book. Like, what the fuck? This is crazy. Right. And they're like, right. Like this, you know, it, all they need is somebody to like, listen to them and to tell them like, no, everything you're feeling right now, you come by it honestly, because the fact that you're alive, you know, the fact that you made it to the point where you didn't completely crumble under your circumstances. Like we saw vapors of it, like Harry very well could have like circled the drain and like been an addict or, you know, he he was actually doing some like risky behavior that, you know, I mean, I don't think he was like at any point, like straight up suicidal, but like he definitely put himself in situations that could have, you know, but he didn't, you know, he kind of was at that point of despair of like, I mean, if this stops, then that would be cool too. I think there's a adjacent experience to not suicidal ideation, but it's kind of like the relief and being unalive, if that makes sense. So I'm going to let y'all reflect on that. And then I have a couple of things, mainly so that we can highlight how his family handled mental health treatment, because I think that is a very relatable um, situation where you're trying to get help, but people are very concerned about what that's going to look like. Yeah. When you said that, like he was having kind of tendencies to not really care about his safety I think back to that trip where he's on the jet ski and it kind of tips over into the water and he sees a crocodile and he's like, Oh no, I can't die. I've got to go on a date with Megan. Like, and it was, he's like epiphany is like, Oh, this is the first time I've ever like wanted to remain alive. Like all the other times that something scary's happened. I've been like, eh, I've had a good run. It's fine. Like he didn't really care, but you know, throw a pretty girl into it that actually likes him. And he's like, no, 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 no. I've got to, I've got to save this for Megan. I've got to, I've got to survive the crocodile. One of the things I keep going back to is um, there's apparently, I don't remember if it was a car ride between him and William and his brother literally turns to him and goes, you look like shit. And I'm just like, he is struggling. You're not offering any assistance but to tell him you look like shit. And he's like, what the fuck? I told you I'm struggling and you're still just coming to me like that. In conclusion, William's a bitch, in my clinical opinion. But anyway, mental health treatment. Uh, these are, a, it'll be a little bit longer of a passage, but it like concise, like he's a great storyteller. So to even pick a couple of like excerpts that kind of start to paint the picture listeners to this podcast, just get the book and read it. Cause it's really great. But, uh, to start off on page two thirty, quote, overall, I felt that I was walking each day through a psychological, emotional minefield and for the listeners, he's uh, juxtaposing this with his mom's work with clearing landmines in like Bosnia and stuff like that. So there's like some creativity there. But I never knew when the next explosion of panic might be. Upon returning to Britain, I did another dive into the research. I was desperate to find a cause, a treatment. I even spoke to Pa, took him into my confidence. Pa, I'm really struggling with panic attacks and anxiety. He sent me to a doctor which was kind of him, but the doctor was a general practitioner with no knowledge or new ideas. He wanted to give me pills. I didn't want pills. Not until I had exhausted other remedies, including homeopathic ones. Over dinner one night at Highgrove, Pa and I spoke at some length about what I had been suffering. 
I gave him the particulars, told him story after story. Towards the end of the meal, he looked down at his plate and said softly, I suppose it's my fault. I should have got you the help you needed years ago. I assured him that it wasn't his fault, but I appreciated the apology. That's the end of the excerpt right there. Uh, we're going to come back and jump on this man for, first of all, the pithy response, and also the fact that Harry is too fucking nice. But moving on uh, to page 254 to continue on to painting this picture for mental health treatment and coping. Uh, Harry goes on to say, quote, I visited Botswana, spent a few days with Tej and Mike. I felt a craving for them, a physical need to go on a wander with Mike, to sit once more with my head and Tej's talking and feeling safe, feeling home. The very end of 2015, I took them into my confidence, told them about my battles with anxiety. We were by the campfire where such things were always best discussed. I told them I'd recently found new things that were sort of working. So there was hope. For instance, therapy. I followed through on Willie's suggestion. And while I hadn't found a therapist I liked, simply speaking to a few had opened my mind to possibilities. Also, one therapist said offhandedly that I was clearly suffering from post-traumatic stress. And that rang a bell. It got me moving, I thought, in the right direction. Another thing that seemed to work was meditation. It quieted my racing mind, uh, brought a degree of calm. I wasn't one to pray. Nature was still my God. But in my worst moments, I'd shut my eyes and be still. Sometimes I'd also ask for help, though I was never sure whom I was asking. Now and then, I felt the presence of an answer. Psychedelics did me some good as well. I'd experimented with them over the years for fun, but now I'd begun to use them therapeutically, medicinally. They didn't simply allow me to escape reality for a while. They let me redefine reality. Under the influence of these substances, I was able to let go of rigid preconcepts to see that there was another world beyond my heavily filtered senses, a world that was equally real and doubly beautiful, a world with no redness, no reason for redness. There was only truth. After the psychedelics wore off, my memory of that world would remain. This is not all there is. I'm going to read that one more time. This is not all there is. All the great seers and philosophers say our daily life is an illusion. I always felt the truth in that, but how reassuring it was after nibbling a mushroom or ingesting a word I can't read to experience it for myself. The one remedy that proved most effective, however, was work, helping others, doing something good in the world, looking outward rather than, than in. That was the path. Africa and Invictus, these had long been the causes closest to my heart. But now I wanted to dive in deeper. Over the last year or so, I'd spoken to helicopter pilots, veterinary surgeons, rangers, and they all told me a war was on. The war to save the planet. War, you say? Sign me up. One small problem. Willie. Africa was his thing, he said. And he had the right to say this, or felt he did, because he was the heir. It was ever in his power to veto my thing and he had every intention of exercising even flexing that veto power end quote so listeners um we're about to go in uh on pa and willie because they got me fucked up so pa let's talk about his response to harry confiding in him 
that he has debilitating anxiety. He does this little like, oh, I probably should have gotten you help sooner. And then, of course, Harry trying to be a dutiful son. Again, he's too nice to these people. Um, is basically appeasing him and saying, oh, no, no, it's they're there. It's not your fault. You know, it's okay. His father has been neglectful his entire life. Like, let's not forget, we talked last week about how he was like down the street. And Harry was like, oh, well, he's a newlywed, even though he'd been married to the bitch for like two years. Like, let's talk about Pa's reaction, because I don't forgot his name again, because he's irrelevant to me. But a pause reaction to this mental health thing. And then we're going to go over to, we're going to talk, talk about some of the coping skills and things that Harry tried to deal with his mental health. As someone who has recently talked to her boomer dad and gotten the exact same response of like, oh, that sounds inconvenient. Okay. Like, I mean, what do you, like, it's, it's hard to do that. I mean, you can talk, you can have an argument for generationally or whatever. It's a shit way to treat your kid. It's a, it's a horrible way to like deal with, somebody bringing an issue to you especially if you do the lip service of i'm here to help you i'm an important role in your life blah 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 so i don't like it i don't like him and john zell's my hero in life for not remembering this name and i love it forever i don't remember things that are irrelevant so his name is charles um and the only reason I know is because every time he does anything big, we had to cover at the news station. So if he comes does a speaking engagement stateside, we're covering it, unfortunately. But it's like he wanted to make himself the victim. He's Your son is clearly telling you he's struggling. And you're just like, oh, I guess it was all my fault. I'm so sorry. No, you're not. You're sorry that somebody is telling you what some of your actions led to. And you still don't want to take responsibility for it. You're just like, oh, well. Okay, I turned out fine. Yeah, I mean, you you said it, and that's exactly how I was I was feeling as well. And it, I think it it touches on a lot of what people who have immature parents kind of feel is that you're parenting your parent, and that's an automatic response. Like if that was what was said to me, I'd do the same thing. No, 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 no. Like I'm good. It's fine. You didn't do anything, right? Because you are so entwined with their emotion, making them feel good. And I think that that has been pushed on him and it's bro- it's broken him essentially, right? Like his dad's important, his grandma's important, his brother is important. Where does that leave any room for him to be important? Um, especially when it comes to like, okay, he's like, all right, I'm going to find some things that I really care about. And his brother's like, no, you can't care about those things. I care about those things. Like uh, there's enough room in the world for everyone to care about everything. I don't. And and why would his dad not step in? That's the other thing too. Like your parents are always your parents, even if you're 30 years old to be like, no, Will, listen up. The whole African thing can be everybody's thing. It's my thing too. Like it's, there's no claims to it. Like stop your squabbling. But I don't think he jumps in ever to defend Harry. Or parents? You don't think he parents? I don't think he parents either. I, I don't think he actually parents. Um, and like these kind of families, it's, it's entertaining to watch the kids fight. It's entertaining. It's engaged. It's like literally egged on and sometimes instigated by the parent to go ahead and watch the siblings fight. It's real gross. I don't wonder too, like the thing where, um, we were talking about like how he was going to take the money to do the, 
the international warrior thing or whatever. And Harry's like, well, I thought some of the people involved would have told you. And I'm wondering, like, it's almost like you can imagine like these support staff people just being like, I ain't going to say nothing because I can't wait for this to blow up. Like I just, and I've read, there's a lot of trashy stuff that's been written from like inside people. And it's been very exploitive little things that I've read though the people who were staffed like in Princess Diana's homes and uh, around this affair and everything like that, they were truly, some of them like really terrible people. Like they would spill all the tea. Like you, can you imagine like someone like, uh, you know, working in your house and like, you know that they're like stabbing you in the back. It's just weird to me. But like the, the, the support staff people, like they're getting their like, you know, they're kind of getting something out of watching these people like and they they could be involved and be like hey let's make sure we're all communicating well we could be good human beings no these people's lives they're just like pieces on a board like this is all entertainment these are not real people their humanity has been stripped of them and they treat each other as subhuman as well it's um that's really what's happening here but yeah there was no parenting going on from the yeah darling boy she didn't make it take care I'm going to, you know, get out of here now. I've done my job. Um, spare. So uh, going into the mental health uh, stuff, he, in that, it was a longer passage, but he kind of went down the line. He was ta- talking about, like, he was trying to find a good therapist. Later on, he does find uh, someone that is a good fit for him. Uh, so he tried therapy. He tried meditation. Um, he tried uh, psychedelics, which is it's a growing area of research in the field of mental health. I, for one, don't have much expertise or understanding about it. I do want to do some research and possibly, you know, write some articles and share more information in the future about it, but I'm not uh, an expert on it. But I've heard uh, in microdosing and uh, certain things. And I think Prince Harry explains it pretty well. He's like, it's not like he's like, yeah, I used to use these things to get high, but like in smaller dosage, it gives you the ability to kind of like, tap into those stuck areas and like gain understanding of that. And so that when you come out, you have those lessons learned in those altered. He said it way better than I can even paraphrase. So I thought that was cool. Um, And then uh, he talked about, uh, you know, he like was able to confide in his, um, his friends and stuff like that. And I feel like I'm missing probably one or two more of those like uh, mental health things that he did um oh work hello um so you know for a lot of us work is probably what we spend more most of our time doing outside of sleeping i mean we definitely spend more time working than we spend sleeping um at least here in these united states it's a slippery slope because some people suppress and avoid dealing with their stuff by working and other people are it's a therapeutic thing i can only speak for myself but i'm a therapist and i was supposed to be an elementary school teacher but i went through my own like mental health kind of situation my junior year of college i went to therapy for the first time at the school that i went to and once i made it through that like dark season of freaking like 10 panic attacks a day i was like well don't want to be anybody's teacher, but I guess I'll go to grad school and become a therapist, you know, and here I am. I now have licenses in two states. Third one pending. Uh, Maryland needs to hurry up. But I am a therapist because I know what it's like to live with anxiety. 
Um, I, in consultation calls with new clients, I'm like, first of all, I am one or two bad days from being in the fucking psych ward my goddamn self. So just know uh, I am also a human. I also know what anxiety feels like. Please do not ever, if you don't choose me as a therapist, and they always choose me because once I speak to them on the phone and, you know, I'm not flexing. I'm just saying I can build rapport with people pretty easily. And people are like, you know what the fuck you're talking about. And I do because I live this shit, right? And so I always tell them, though, if you end up not going with me for some reason, make sure you ask the therapist that you book an appointment with if they have a therapist. That's all I ask you to do. Do not trust a therapist who doesn't have a therapist because basically it's the blind leading the blind that's kind of scary to me because mental health is like already like messy enough you get somebody in there working on your mental health who don't even got their own like shit organized their poop in a group that scares me i get anxiety thinking about it so therapy is very important but going back to what uh harry was saying is that work in his capacity, like he had the, the the means and the privilege to be able to do, to make differences with things. Uh, with me as a therapist, I'm able to use my own story and my own anxiety as a superpower to specialize in talking to, especially I work with a lot of teenagers and college students who have anxiety and depression. I know that because I'm also a young person who has anxiety and depression. I, I'm able to make a lot of difference with that, right? Um, and also like having a background in mental health and being able to, you know, tell stories or being able to write articles or being able to podcast about something. I'm able to use my thing that pays my bills, like what I do for work. And it's also able to have a bigger impact than just me being able to pay my bills. Like it's, it has a bigger ripple effect. So I think for, um, Harry being able to find meaningful work like that has been, very therapeutic to him. So on that regards, I can resonate with him. Also, as a person with anxiety, as a person with a mixed race family, like, I can resonate with him on a lot of different levels. But that one, I just felt like I needed to say, like, work can be a very therapeutic thing, unless it's being used to avoid in which you get into workaholism, and you're avoiding your problems. And that could be a whole mess. Any good thing can turn into a bad thing if it's not in the right levels. So that's the end of my rant. I'm sure people listening to this might be able to make some sense of whatever just came out of my mouth, but I'm gonna let y'all take it over because there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I was going to say, uh, first of all, I love everything that you just said. Um, I was going to say though, one of the other things he brought up was meditation and that quieting the mind. And I know um, that there's a ton of different types of meditation, kind of different kinds of meditation. And it kind of like what ends up working for you. It can even be a quiet minute. It can be you know, at work, you can meditate at work, you can do that um, in a um, peaceful way. So I really like that he brought that up. Um, I like that he brought up, I wanted to do holistic stuff first. Um, there's a lot, I, I am in mental health and have been in healthcare for the last 24, 25 years. And it's a special interest of mine anyway, uh, being a woman leader in healthcare and a woman that gets healthcare um, and a chronically ill person. Uh, it's definitely a project like that, but um, just saying I want to take a holistic approach and there is a lot of options available that isn't just take a pill. And I think the more people kind of know that the healthcare industry is an industry, the systematic, like the Royals, 
the systemic nature of that, like all of these things are not set up to take care of people in a way that they should be. And taking all that with a grain of salt, I mean, I think my head almost, uh, the podcast people didn't hear it, but my head almost came off my neck when John was saying, like, in mental health, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know what you're getting when you go to any provider. So just use discernment. Mental health providers that do not have therapists are a red flag. Um, um, and, uh, you know, just discernment is a is a wonderful thing that should definitely happen but yeah i wanted to touch on the the psychedelic aspect because shortly after i finished that part uh, john oliver came out with a piece you can watch it on youtube about mdma microdosing and like talking about kind of where we're at and how uh it's exciting but like we need to be cautious and like the history of of psychedelic use um with therapy and he was quoting this uh guy who was like an article about a guy that was using it. And he said that like him and his friends took a bunch and like, they were kind of like in a pile and uh, they started like asking each other questions and like thinking about different thoughts. And one of them said, let's think about what if our moms died and they all kind of like, like, Whoa. And one of them said, yeah, it's not that bad. And that's when he realized that microdosing MDMA could let you kind of access really horrific traumatic thoughts, but think of it through a rosy enough lens that you could process the harm and get yourself to the other side. And so I'm interested to see if Harry did did that in a controlled way with uh, a therapist or someone guiding him or chose to go in the rabbit hole alone. Um, but I think it's been really interesting because as much as, you know, other things sometimes work, um, like EMDR, sometimes your brain just like won't let you go there and you can try and you can try and you can try and you can try. But like person, that's where I'm stuck. I'm like, my brain won't let me go there. We're not going there. We've tried like every which way to get at it. And my brain's like, nope, we're protecting ourselves. There's a big red wall here. We don't go past it. And so if this is something he can shed light on, if we can start talking about, yeah, holistic stuff is great if we can kind of weave it in because I'd rather be treated and fixed than told, oh, you need to be on anxiety medication. Definitely. And like you said, to compare those things, if we're looking at stuff holistically, I, I'm trained in EMDR. Like I know how that works. It It's kind of basically getting the brain primed to be in a processing state. I believe with my fundamental not knowing much about how psychedelics work, understanding that it works on the same mechanism where it can bring down that kind of like you said, there's a point, there's a wall that is in my system. My body has built it up to protect me from meltdown, right? And therapy, talk therapy can only get so far before it's like, turn around, <laughs> you don't belong here, right? And so uh, that would be something interesting to obviously research more, but also hopefully um, I don't think it goes into, in this particular book, much more detail into how that's played out. Because obviously he's a royal, so he's talking about using psychedelics and like smoking weed and stuff like that. Like, uh, I'm sure that the editors were like, you know, like, okay, how much of this can we put in here without like getting sued and being shut down, right? So I'm sure that this there's a limited scope here. Um but it's definitely, you know, you work in the medical profession too. So it, I think it'll be very just exciting to see how these sort of things kind of play out. And I will say one more thing. 
because uh, you were talking about like the people who took some psychedelics and they were able to like think about things in a more lucid state and stuff like that. From being trained in EMDR, I am in an interesting position to be a facilitator to get someone in that state to process stuff. However, there's a side to that where you got to be careful because you're bringing down like the the mental walls and the boundaries that have been put around something in hopes to help someone like undo a blockage to help them improve their quality of life. But that shit could go left so fast. When I tell you, I literally, I was doing a processing, a EMDR processing session with a client and it was through telehealth. And when I tell you, I got the person started with the butterfly hug to begin the processing. And I literally, all I did was look down at my iPad to, cause I just write notes on like in notes. And I was literally just taking like the Apple pencil and erasing the last note from the last session and putting that person's initials at the top. The person dissociated, like in the time I was erasing my note into the, and I was like, oh shit. And then it was a meltdown and the rest of the hour was putting them back together. So I did nothing wrong. They're, they're just like, their system was ready for those walls to come down. And it was like, oh shit. And I will say that those who have experimented, and I, I can only speak from clients who've tried microdosing without medical advice, without supervision, and all of that, not in a clinical setting, not legit, not purchased from a controlled place where it's not from some person on the street. People have had some uh, dissociations. They've had some uh, going off the deep end, and now they're traumatized that they almost didn't find their way back kind of shit. So if you're listening to this podcast, please do not take any uh, insights from Prince Harry uh, or even from something that we've said and make any uh, homegrown remedies for yourself. I believe that it's important to make sure that we're all taking care of ourselves. But with that being said, if it has the ability to shake some stuff up and to break some of those walls down, there's probably some therapeutic benefit. It's just going to take some research study, some damn trial and error in order to probably get to a place where it is going to do more good than harm, but still exciting nonetheless. Yeah. That was the end of the, that was the end of the John Oliver segment was like talking about, he called it the, the devil's train to hell. And he's, he was talking about like, you know, it's really exciting that this is coming back and like being allowed in clinical trials, but like, we have to be really careful because uh, some people respond really well to this treatment and some people don't. And uh, he like then started showing clips of like what happened in the seventies when everything got banned and like these people being like, you may never come back from a trip down the psychedelic hole and like all these like crazy kind of uh, witch hunt things based on like a few people's, you know, experiences. So he was just trying to kind of like putting a cautionary tale at the end that was like, this is great when you have proper medical treatment involved. So we shouldn't just like, you know, allow people to do psychedelics without medical professionals. I'm going to share one quick thing and then I'll I'll pass it back to you. Mm -hmm. I've worked in um, as a clinician in a um, psych capacity. uh, So doing intakes for, you know, like people come into an emergency room with a mental health crisis and they end up in a like a psych ward. Uh, I'll never forget. There was one time uh, there was a young man who had tried, I want to say... I don't know if it was acid. We truly couldn't figure out what he did, but it was some sort of like psychedelic 
And the the tragic thing about it was is that he had used about a week and a half prior to me seeing him the man's entire ex- like everything was wiped i don't know what he got i don't know if it was laced with something but truly he couldn't talk he didn't know who he was i believe his entire memory and existence went offline and it was unable to he was unable to access it and that's not to say if you use a psychedelic that's going to happen to you but since i'm a mental health professional and i've gotten to see a variety of different experiences i think it's worth mentioning what ashley said about like the cautionary thing of if you're gonna try something experimental uh there are places that are doing so under you know obviously it's uh research-based and uh you know things are being learned as we go but don't experiment at home and do not get your medical and mental health advice from youtube or uh goddamn tiktok is really making it hard out here for us real licensed therapists who've spent six figures on their education holy fuck please do not get your mental health advice solely from TikTok. Because if I have one more person come in my office and show me a TikTok about how they think that they've diagnosed themselves, I'm, let me stop talking. Um, uh, Steph, you go. And then uh, Brianna, you're after her. I was just going to put a plug in for new two non-drug related treatments, <laughs> neurofeedback and somatic therapy. I've been both personally really great for my own recovery, but I would I would just say that those are also two kind of alternative treatments that help with neural pathways. They help with the somatics really great with helping with sensations in the body and like kind of moving energy a little bit. Um, and so those were two things that I didn't even know existed up until like four or five years ago. So just want to put a plug in for that. Um. So what I like about this excerpt and this journey that he's sharing is that he's open, but he's doing the work. He's like, you know, I realize meditation can be this. I'm out in nature. I do this. I'm interested in the psychedelics. I'm trying this. But he is, he's open and he's doing the work. There are times in my life when I've used medication. There are times in my life when I haven't used medication. Full disclosure, I am um, crunchy (laughs) and um, I actually used to work on a mushroom farm. And one of the things in my life that's been really hard for me is I feel like I have always been split between worlds. I have a white collar career and two master's degrees. Um, I am very, very hippie, bohemian. My mother brews her own kombucha, like full nine yards. And like I said, I worked on a mushroom farm for fun as a part-time job. Um, Crunchy is like, I am crunchy granola where my uh, Birkenstocks, this is who I be. Natural dyes, like all all that jazz. I'm a hippie. Um, And so I do find, I I really appreciated the way that he, he came to that. Like, you know, there's different things he's trying. He's not against this. He wants to try other things first. But I do, I do have to kind of like laugh and in kind of an exasperated way when I hear some of my world country crunchy friends talking about, um, you know, the interest in psychedelics. Because really, when we look at our our drugs, so much 
already comes from fungi. And it's just like, we want to call it an experience. And because it's an experience, then we've destigmatized it being a controlled substance. Oh, it's natural. Like, yeah, but I mean, we need what we need. Um, But I, I just think regardless of what treatment option you choose, right now, you know, I'm looking at changing different things again. I am a big um, cordyceps person. So when it comes to mushrooms, um, I have my ratio and my lion's mane every day. And I do have them encapsulated like a medicated form. That's part of my anti-anxiety regimen. So that's a thing for me. But there are other times in my life where I really needed traditional pharmaceutical meds. But I like this excerpt because he's open to it, but he's going to do the work. And we are too often a pill for every pain society. And I feel like that was the backlash that he's receiving from that doctor is, well, you know, I can give this to you and it will fix it. There are such real things as chemical imbalances. There are such real things as, um, you know, trauma and some neurotransmitter just firing off too often. And we should use medical research and AIDS. But you have to do the work. You have to have your green vegetable. You have to have your sunshine. If you need your meds, you have to have your meds. You know, you have to sit and think, but you can't, whether it's psychedelics or whatever, we keep looking for this, this way out and it's not there. You just have to do the work. Yeah, that's definitely true. And uh, I like that excerpt as well. Obviously, I read it, but because he's using when we say the word holistic, I think a lot of people's mind goes to all natural, right? For me, personally, holistic for my own personal mental health treatment is I go to the gym five to six days a week, I take my antidepressant prescribed by a psych nurse practitioner, that's trial and error, I journal, I um, do my hobbies and outlets that give me um, the ability to be creative. So I write personal essays. I write articles about mental health. I have a podcast. Um, I read books like it's my damn job, but I love reading books and I have a business. So they're legitimate business expenses. If the IRS is listening, this is a legitimate business expense. Okay. We now have it on wax that this is legitimate business expense, tax season. Had to put that out there. And I do a lot of other things. So sometimes like even just sharing my own story uh, with other people or listening to, you know, I think that's why I love memoirs so much. Like my mental health treatment today is not the same mental health treatment I was getting when I was, you know, at Roanoke College having all those panic attacks, right? And the same thing goes with, you know, these medications, like, uh, I've never tried the um I've never tried psychedelics or you know some of these other more natural uh kind of things. However, from a even a medication standpoint, I've probably if you put down a list of antidepressants, I could probably highlight several ones that I've tried that may work for a period of time and then stop working, they plateaued or I had a bad reaction to it. There's even new advances in that. Like uh, I learned probably in the past two years, there's an actual genetic test you can take. Uh, I'm sure there's multiple companies. The one I did was called Genocyte. Um, and basically my psych nurse practitioner, I think I want to say I like, I want to say I like bit into a tube or they swab my mouth. I can't remember. They basically send these swabs off and it's only a couple of days 
and then you get it back and there's like a report and it's like kind of real uh elementary it's like green yellow red and then it will do a column for each type so for antidepressants you get a green yellow and red red meaning don't take this it's bad for your genetics right yellow you should probably use some caution green according to your genetics it's probably going to be okay i did this after almost like probably nine years of taking antidepressants from people who really weren't trained in mental health. And of course, I wasn't surprised to see that the ones I had reactions to were on the yellow and red thing and or the ones that gave me weird side effects and stuff like that. So we have so much technology, we have so much information, we have so many different options. So like Brianna said, it's not a, you know, a pill will not fix everything for someone. Now, for some people, uh, antidepressant, a low dose of something, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. They are going to go live their best life. That is all they need. For another person, they're like, I don't fuck with pills. I want a therapist, right? Uh, another person is like, I don't do that therapy nonsense. Let's run. You know, um, there's so many different options. And I think this uh, little section uh, in this book, um, again, I think we all keep coming back to this thing of we're getting so much value from this person who, on the surface, we would think, I have nothing to get from this man. This man doesn't get me. This man doesn't understand. But I think there's so much like good information and conversations coming out of this book. So he did very well. I mean, it was like a page and a half uh, that I read there. And he kind of gave a great snapshot of a good chunk of like the types of mental health treatment that people can try. So I really enjoyed that. Anybody else have anything to add? Just real quick, because I can see you doing this with somebody at, and I think I might be getting ahead, but he's talking to a therapist and he's just like, can I give you a hug? The fact that a grown man has to ask this therapist for a hug because his family never did it is insane. Yeah, I think to piggyback on that, I think in that same kind of area, he's he goes to the therapist and says, I'd like to cry, please. Um, And that just like, oof, that was, a, that hit so hard because that was like my journey. Like the first few sessions we would just sit there and I'd cry for an hour and a half and she'd be like, okay, we'll see you next week. And you're like, wow, that's, yep. Sometimes you just need someone who you feel like you're safe enough that you can cry around. And I don't know, I really connected with that with him. He's like, you know, I need a hug and I need to cry and I, I need to let out all this emotion so I can unpack it, but feeling it, he had to feel it first. So. Yeah. And as another male, I will uh, piggyback on that, uh, you know, and on Harry's like uh, sentiment. When I went to therapy for the first time at, at Roanoke College, like the counseling center, the truly, I would say probably the first five sessions, I literally walked in there. The therapist knew to just have the box of tissues ready. And he's like, so what are we working on today? And I was crying for an entire hour, like, but there was no safe place up until that point to do that and i would not be able to tell you other than the little pithy metaphor of like how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time i remember that was a common refrain we don't eat elephants they're um endangered you know knowing that now um but that was pretty much the only like takeaway i got from that particular therapy like that therapist himself was not a good fit for me but i needed a first of all couldn't afford therapy so it was free with my tuition or whatever but I had a place to go every week to cry and to decompress whatever was going on inside, in addition to the new antidepressants that I was uh, prescribed. And 
the combination of just having a place to vent and cry and being able to let the medication do what it needed to do, it got me through that. And once I got through that, I decided that, hey, maybe I can, you know, do this whole therapy thing. So I guess it worked out. Um, so try different things out and, you know, see what happens. But someone else had a, a thought. I just wanted to. It's there's so many good nuggets here. I just feel like I need to like hop in and be like, yes, that. Not related to what we were talking about, but I had this thought. Um, so my, do you think he also got treated with this because he has red hair? And I'm asking in a very genuine question because like my sister got treated differently because she has red hair and like my grandfather got treated differently because he has red hair. So like, do you think that added to it too? Because there's kind of an othering that happens with that. And I think that he was able to relate more to a Megan or to Megan and like, literally anyone being othered than anyone else in his family because he well you know he was the spare that too but do you think that's related to it i mean i don't know i just thought about it thought maybe that would be worth talking about a little bit i mean he does very pro the redheads in my life so i mean the media even questioned he doesn't look like them right and like oh he could be the child of the tennis whatever coach or something um so i mean you're probably not wrong right like, I know kids, you know, are kind of mean sometimes when you don't look like your family. They'd be like, oh, you're like the milkman or the postman. Maybe there was some of that going on. I mean, six-year-olds can be cruel as it is. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think the various books that we've kind of like gone through, and we got one more week, y'all, so this ain't the end. But um, the the various books we've gone through have had different intensities as it relates to like mental health. But if you think about it, mental health is just a kind of specialized or like um, perspective on life in general, because, you know, our mental health is not just our emotions, but it's our, you know, physical being, it's our environment, it's our relationships, it's our, you know, um, connection with things bigger than us, whether that be uh, society, spirituality, like Mental health uh, pretty much can encompass anybody's story, but it's also kind of cool when um, the books that we're going through like directly point to like specific like, hey, mental health stuff going on here. Like we've talked about uh, PTSD, we've talked about uh, crippling anxiety, we've talked about panic attacks, uh, we've talked about like um, I think we said social anxiety, like stage fright, like. Um, all of that just in this uh, this one conversation in one person's story. And and then on top of that, he uh, added a lot of great little like details into things that he's tried to treat his mental health. And I really appreciate that because uh, unfortunately, people come to therapy with me and they're like, okay, uh, I'm going to come to you for four sessions. So figure it out and get me, uh, fix me. Uh, and that's how it's going to be. And while I, I like to think I'm great, one of the best in Virginia, uh, probably the East coast, it's, they don't work like that. It, it, it's, it, for some people, truly they can come to two or three sessions and they're good. Most people, that's not the case because most people, they, it's kind of like you were supposed to get your oil changed at 3000 miles and it's been 15,000 miles and your shit is broke down on the side of the road and it got towed here. 
and the engine is locked up and you think that just putting some fresh oil in there is going to fix the thing, right? So sometimes when we let our maintenance go unchecked for a long time and we think, oh, quick fix, figure it out, it don't work like that. So I, I really I, I really like this part of the book. But anyway, to wrap up, uh, for next week, it's easy. I don't have to tell you what uh, chapters and sections and where to stop at because we basically begin at chapter 30 of uh, part three, which is the section about his relationship, and we go to the end of the book. So um, it's uh, chapter 30, part three to the end. So if you're following along, listeners, um, that is what we're doing next week. So next week will be the episode where we kind of wrap up this discussion. But um, for those listening to this, too, do know that this uh, these conversations are just scratching the surface. Like, um, And I'm not always like... A, you know, uh, not every book that I've picked has been my favorite, but this particular one, I would highly recommend um, uh, people go out and get because it's been a really, really good one. If not for the the content or the drama of the royal stuff, but truly because this man is gifted at storytelling and imagery. So, yeah. But until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode's show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.